You are listening to Sermon Audio from Red Tree Church. For more information about our church or to find more Sermon Audio, visit redtreechurch.com. Good morning, church. I am stoked for what God has for us today. Uh, it's going to be a little weird. We, we, we're off a week again. And, I, you know, listen, I like snow days as much as, as much as anyone else. I really do. But seriously, the third time this year. So I'm glad we're back, but we're going to do something a little different today. And, and it's in part because that we had to miss last week. We, we've been in the Gospel of Mark for uh, more than a year at this point, And we're to the point in the story where we, we, we can't really skip chunks of the story anymore. So we're, we're going to do something that we don't normally do. We're actually going to look at a really large chunk of Mark today. And rather than normally we kind of zone in on, on one specific story and kind of really pick it apart, we're going to look at a larger section, and we're going to, we're going to look at some of the broader themes that Mark is working out. And I think, I think it's going to be really beneficial for us today. So you can turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 14 as you do that. We have, we have house Bibles on the end of each row, by the way. If you don't have um, a, a copy of the Bible of your own, we'd love for you to grab one of those or talk to one of our elders, and we'll get you a nicer copy. So if you have a Bible with you this morning, give someone on the end of the row a dirty look. They'll pass you one, and you can start turning uh, to Mark chapter 14. I'm going to pray for us really quick and just ask the Holy Spirit to be, to be in this time with us and, and to illuminate this text for us. God, you are so stinking good to us. You are good to us beyond our understanding. This morning, Lord, as we look at what for most of us will be a really familiar text, we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would be our interpreter, that you would be our discipler, that you would proclaim your gospel to us, that we might respond in repentance and dependence upon you, God. Holy Spirit, thank you that you love us enough to actually teach the text and teach the truth and reveal the truth of God to us. We need you so much, and we give you such little credit for that. God, you're really, really good to us. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. So we're in Mark chapter 14, and we're actually going to start in verse 10, and we're going to work our way uh, through a large chunk, actually the majority of this chapter. And so let me, let me catch us up to what we're, what we're doing here. So if you guys recall, we're, we're near the end of Mark. We're getting really close, actually, to the end of the story. And in our, in our text uh, right now, we're actually going to transition theological themes, as theologians have spent a long time uh, studying books like Mark. Uh, they they kind of divide up Jesus' life into different aspects of his ministry. And, and right now, in chapter 14, we're working through uh, what theologians call the humiliation of Christ, which, which happens specifically in chapter 14 through what theologians call the abandonment of Christ. And, and in the end of our text, we're going to transition uh, when Jesus is arrested to what is called the passion of Christ. And we're going to begin working through um, his physical suffering leading up to the cross. But today, we're going to be looking at, at Mark 14 and this, this idea that theologians for a long time have called the abandonment of Christ. And, and the reason we're going to look at this as a whole, there, I mean, there's 
45 sermons, right, in what we're going to look at. But, but this is, uh, for most of us, pretty familiar territory. The, the story of the last kind of 48 hours of Jesus' life is probably the most well-known of the stories in Scripture, especially the stories in the New Testament. So if you've spent any time around church, these stories will ring familiar to you, which I think is why it's all the more important for us to be intentional about choosing to be present and choosing to hear them afresh, because I think, I think God has something really cool to speak to us this morning that I think, I think will be convicting for all of us. And so as we go through this, as we grab a hold of chunks that are familiar to you, I want to encourage you to allow yourself to hear them, hear them afresh and hear them connected to each other. You see, most often we look at stories isolated from each other, but we've talked about this a lot. Mark is, is really a master at weaving the stories together and creating the overarching narrative. And so today, we're going to get a chance to step back for just a second and experience part of this story a little closer to the way Mark's original audience would have experienced it. Remember, Mark was really written to be read aloud in like a single sitting. And so we're going to get a larger chunk of the text, and I would encourage you to listen to it, to read along, and, and, and instead of zoning in on the specific scenes in this story we're going to see, I would encourage you to allow yourself to step back a little bit and see this larger thing that Mark's doing. Does that make sense? So we're starting in verse 10. This is actually going back to Pastor Jesse's sermon, but uh, we're, we're, remember, we're, we're at the last week of Jesus' life. He's gone into the temple and cast his judgment. He's spent time on the Mount of Olives prophesying about the destruction of Jerusalem. He spent time in Bethany outside the city with friends. Uh, and there was just the story where uh, his feet were anointed with the expensive ointment and there was a judgment and back and forth. And starting in verse 10, we get this of Mark 14. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him, him being Jesus. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, is it I? And he said to them, it is one of the twelve. One who is dipping the bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. 
And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they drank it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter in temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately... While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they lay hands on him and seized him. But, the one, but one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching. You did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. And this is the word of the Lord. So this is a heavy text. There's, there's a lot going on here. And, and, and I, I read the whole piece. We're not going to focus in on the Last Supper and communion in those pieces, because as Craig said, we're we're going to do a Maundy Thursday communion service, and so we'll dig in to that stuff more in depth. But I included that in the reading because I wanted you to see the buildup of this story. I wanted you to, to follow this 
The, the, way, the way the original audience would follow what's, what's building upon pieces as we work through this chapter. So, so here's what I'd like for us to do. I, I just want us to kind of walk back through this story a little experientially. I'd love for you to allow yourself to imagine these scenes. I'd love for you to actually reflect on some of these words and questions that are spoken. And we're going to do our best to just let this story kind of speak for itself. I, I might point out a couple little historical things, but, but I really just think as we walk back through this, a lot of, of what is in here will be evident to us. And then we're going to end out our time in Romans at, at the very end of that. So, so walk with me in this. Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's celebrating the Passover. He's been performing miracles and speaking prophecies. And he's had this triumphal entry where people have acknowledged him as the Messiah for the first time, right? Like publicly, like it seems like things are going as well as they could be going from the outside. And yet Christ has been predicting steadily every time everyone around him gets into this fever pitch, he kind of pops their bubble and he's like, this is not going to go well. You all think this is going to be awesome. This is not going to go well. And everyone's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they just like go right back into the fever pitch, right? He's, he's taken them on the Mount of Olives and prophesied about how Jerusalem and the temple and all that will come to nothing and they need to keep watch and be prepared. And then he goes and they, they celebrate this meal with friends and it's just like everyone's right back where they were, right? And, and you have this moment where we're led into a piece of the story where Judas snaps, right? That as he's been working through this stuff, for whatever reason, he gets to the point where he says, I'm not only not in this anymore, I want this thing done. And so he goes and he plots with Jesus' enemies. He sets up a plan to ensnare and capture Jesus. But Jesus' followers are totally unaware of this, right? Like, we're, as, as, as the audience, we're led into this part of the story where you're kind of like, this is terrible. And everyone else in the story is still celebrating and partying and looking around at how awesome Jerusalem is and thinking, this is great, the Messiah is here, it's going to be awesome. And you as the audience member are going, no, the guy, the thing. And you're just kind of stuck watching the story play out, right? And then they, they prepare for the actual Passover dinner. And here's what I think is so interesting about this part of the story. Jesus performs here essentially the same miracle he performed at, at the triumphal entry, right? He sets up this thing where he's like, oh, walk in, you'll see a random person, this and this and this will happen. And everyone's like, whoa, that's crazy, it's just like you said. And yet, you notice this one hits you totally different. When, when it happens in the triumphal entry, it's this further just like, he's the Messiah, he's all powerful, he's controlling this whole situation. And when you get to it at this part, you're like, but Judas is about to betray you. And it, and it loses some of its grandeur even though it's essentially the same miracle, right? And they go, and they celebrate the meal, and Jesus drops this bomb. One of you is going to betray me, which is so interesting, because now as the audience, you're led into the fact that Jesus knows what's going down. This isn't a secret from him. Everyone else might be oblivious, but, but Jesus knows what's actually going on behind the scenes. He has the perspective of a participant, and he also has your perspective as the audience. Like He knows what's happening in the background, and his, and his followers have no idea how to process this, right? 
You see in the scene where they're celebrating Passover. It's a feast. It's celebratory. It's worshipful. They're in Jerusalem. It's this, all this culmination, and Jesus is dropping these bombs, and they don't really know what to do with it. They're sorrowful. It messes with them. They're distraught. They kind of go around the room like, is it me? Is it me? And, and, and Mark's telling of the story, for whatever reason, the, the, way, the way it's given to us is Jesus just says, it's one of the twelve. It's one of the ones sitting here with me. And you as the audience are going, it's Judas. It's the slimy looking one. <laughs> but everyone in the room is just doesn't know how to process it. And then Jesus, in, like, in that context, by the way, in that moment where the air has been sucked out of the room and everyone's contemplating loyalty and betrayal and righteousness and evil, that's when Jesus is like, hey, let me show you this thing called communion. It's really awesome. They're going to love it in like 2,000 years. That's where Jesus introduces the idea of the Lord's Supper and communion, is in the midst of this awkward relational turmoil, this tension between worship and celebration, and this, this like enlightening of like coming betrayal. Jesus steps into that and says, my body broken, my blood poured out, which is worthy of reflection, but not today. They finish that, they share a hymn, and they leave. And in this section, in verse 25, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This discussion that happens when the, between when the meal is finished and as they work their way through the town, remember they're eating the, the meal within Jerusalem proper, and they're working their way at night outside the city, outside the walls, into the Mount of Olives, this place that Jesus has gone before. That walk that Jesus actually has his last intimate conversation with his disciples. And Mark skips it for us, almost all of it. But, but you can read about it in, in the other Gospels. It, it's, it really, he, you can see Jesus' heart of going, I know this is my last chance to tell you guys how much I love you. And, and to tell you guys what, 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 how much this community means and how important this is. And you see Jesus getting out as much as he can during this last little walk together. But Mark just gives us this back and forth between Peter and Jesus, which is so interesting. Peter steps up and basically says, hey, I'm not going to do that. I know you said, you just said that we're going we're gonna to leave you, we're going to abandon you, that you're just going to be, that's not me. And I love how, how, actually this is insane, I love how Peter throws everyone else under the bus. This is verse 29. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. <laughs> he, Jesus says, he's already said, right, one of you will betray me. And now he says, all of you will abandon me. And Peter steps up and he's like, not me. And Jesus doesn't even like, Jesus shuts him down. This goes, yes, you will, Peter, tonight. It's going to happen. You can see this just like Jesus not giving him room for his bravado here, just going, yes, you will, Peter, tonight. You're going to abandon me. And Peter's still just like, no, nah. no, nah, that's not how it's going down. And he even ups the ante. Because I would die for you, Jesus. I will die before I abandon you. It's bold. 
I wonder how many of us, for a moment, really quick, I wonder how many of us have spoken to God with bold words and bold promises. We have had maybe higher estimations of our own character than Christ sees when he looks upon us soberly. But Peter ups to Annie and says, I will die before I betray you. And at this point in the story, they transition. They're at the Mount of Olives, but they go to this specific place at the base of the Mount of Olives called the Garden of Gethsemane. I think we have a picture of it. Um, Do we have a picture of it here? Um, And it's important for you to see this. This is still there. You can go look at it. In fact, some of these olive trees um, were most likely there when Jesus was there, which is crazy to think about. But it's, it's essentially this little park. It's got walking paths. It's got places to hide under a tree and pray and meditate. It, it was, it was a, a, a trafficked place in that day. And it, it sits at the base of the Mount of Olives that overlooks Jerusalem and the temple. And so Jesus makes his way here, and he's got his whole entourage with him. And he essentially says, hey, everybody, stay here and keep watch. I'm going to go in and pray. And then he takes just his inner circle with him, just Peter, James, and John, right? The three most bold disciples, Peter who said he would die before he'd betray him, James and John who said they deserve to sit at his right hand and they will take whatever baptism he's taking. His closest friends, his most bold and confident allies, they go a little farther into the garden and even there's a point where Jesus moves beyond them and says, guys, I love you. Will you stay here and pray for me because I am not doing well. And I want you to see the confession in Jesus' voice when he says this. I am troubled. I am sorrowful unto death. the, The English there does not render well. But Jesus is saying, guys, I am not doing well. I'm going to go pray. I need you to pray for me and keep watch. And you can see the mismatch here of emotion. Even though Jesus could not have been blunter about what's going on, about what's coming for him in Jerusalem over the the weeks leading up to this. The moment is is too much, and his disciples miss him. You know, you've got these good old boys from Galilee who are following the Messiah, and they're celebrating the Passover in Jerusalem with the Messiah, and even though they don't fully understand what he's saying, the excitement of the moment is too much. And they're kind of used to not understanding what Jesus says, right? They're just like, I'm just glad to be here. (laughs) And so Jesus tells them, God, I'm I'm not doing well. He, He gives them a deeper, more intimate picture into where his heart is at than he gives the rest of the disciples. He says, please sit and pray for me and keep watch for me. And then we're given access into one of the most intense scenes in Jesus' life and his incarnation. He goes off by himself and he falls on his face before God. And he asks him to relieve the coming cup of wrath from him. And I, I want you, I really like, I need you to engage this aspect of the story. See, it's really easy for us to grab a hold of Jesus's passion, his suffering, his his facing the cross with dignity, right? And it's easy for us to write that off. We, we think about Hebrews and go, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He's God. He knew what was going on. He, he, he was able to engage this. But guys, 
The doctrine of the incarnation tells us that Jesus was fully man. And he was tempted as we are tempted. And that he experienced dread at the thought of the cross. And the thought of the wrath of God. He did not walk, like skip and jaunt into his arrest and his suffering. Jesus is somber here. And somber is not the right word. Jesus is upset. Upset is not the right word. Jesus is agonized here. He doesn't want to do this. And that's a really important thing for you to wrestle with. Because Jesus loves you a lot. Jesus loves you in ways that you don't understand. Jesus knows you, sees you with sober and affectionate eyes, and he gladly gives of himself for you, but he did not want to do this. Because sin is real, and wrath is real. Punishment is real. And Christ agonized. He agonized over this. I want you to get this picture. Mark is the only gospel that gives us this picture of Jesus calling, calling God his Abba in this moment. Jesus is on his face before God, saying, please don't make me do this. Is there, is there any other way we can do this? And God says, no. No. This is how it's going to happen. And Jesus' response is, not my will, but your will. And I want, you to, I want you to see that picture in contrast to what's happening a few feet away. Because Jesus prays this same agonizing, desperate, begging prayer three times. And three times he comes to his closest friends who he's asked to keep watch and to pray for him because he's not doing well and they're asleep. Right? And we get that. It's been a long day. They party hard. They drink a bunch of wine. The garden's beautiful. They probably started to pray and they fell asleep. The, the, the absolute, like the chasm between the disciples' self-awareness and Jesus' actual experience in this moment should strike you. These men love Jesus and they are clueless as to his suffering right now. These are his closest friends and they are clueless as to his suffering right now. They fall asleep while he's 30 feet away, begging God to give him mercy. And they can't keep awake and pray. They can't keep awake and keep watch for him. And Jesus here looks at Peter and says, your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. I wonder how many of us love God as Peter loves God. That there's something in us that genuinely really cares about him and is really just excited to be here. And yet, our love for him is tragically unaware of ourselves. Jesus goes back and forth. I, I want to read a, a line to you here from a theologian. This is from a guy named James Edwards. He's a reform guy, and he, he says this. 
the relinquishment of Jesus' body on Golgotha depends on the prior surrender of his will to the Father. That surrender takes place not on a hill outside Jerusalem, but in a valley beneath it. According to Mark, the decision to submit to the Father's will causes Jesus greater internal suffering than the physical crucifixion on Golgotha. The cross is a matter of the heart before it is a matter of the hand. It is a matter of the will before it is an empirical reality. So why, we may ask, is Jesus so assailed by the prospect of his death? Surely we all know individuals who face the prospect of their deaths with greater composure and even courage than Jesus seems to do. Why does Jesus, who has foreseen his death and marched so resolutely to Jerusalem to meet it, now seem to quail before it? In chapter 10, he spoke of the purpose of the Son of Man to give his life as a ransom for many. That was the objective description of his purpose, the objective description of his purpose. And now we see the subjective experience of Christ's purpose. In Gethsemane, Jesus makes the first payment of that ransom. To will to become the sin bearer for humanity, Jesus stands before the final consequences of being the suffering servant of God who was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. It is one thing, fearful as it will be, to answer for our own sins before a holy and almighty God. But who can imagine what it would be like to stand before God Almighty to answer for every sin and crime and act of malice and injury and cowardice and evil in this world. In acquiescing to the Father's will of bearing the sin of many and interceding for the transgressors, Jesus necessarily experiences an abandonment and a darkness of cosmic proportions. The worst prospect of becoming a sin bearer for humanity is that it spells complete alienation from God. Remember, Jesus is really misunderstood and really unknown in his life. He's a single dude in his 30s who travels around doing public speaking. And most of his friends don't really get him. They don't, they don't really understand him. His, his solace is in his connection to God, his reliance in the Spirit. And here in Gethsemane, Jesus is put face to face with the reality that creating a way of life for these people, these people who love him but don't get it, who, who follow him but totally miss him, that the making a way for them means destroying his own intimacy with God. It means actually crushing and destroying his own connection his own friendship, his own relationship, his own love and intimacy. And the thought of that weighs on Christ so heavily that he begs for a different option. God tells him no. And he says, okay. We must sit with that. Here Christ crucifies his own will surrenders to the will of the Father to fully participate 
in the redemption of humanity through experiencing divine wrath. And he walks back out to find his friends asleep again. And he just says, guys, just get up. Just get up. It's happening anyway. The actual phrase there, by the way, I love this. This is in um, verse 41, where he says, it is enough. It's basically, in the Greek, him saying, I don't know what to do with you. (laughs) He walks out and he goes, and by the way, you can imagine Jesus dirty and sweat stained and blood down his forehead, and he wakes him up a third time, and he just goes, just get up, just get up. It's happening. And as he's speaking, the betrayer arrives. And, and all of a sudden, out of the woods and out of the darkness, they find themselves surrounded in the chaos by armed people. And, and I don't want to dig in here too deep, but, but suffice to say, in, in the language of this, we're not talking about like five people. You're talking about dozens and dozens of armed guards. Jesus, when he asked his disciples to keep watch, wasn't just saying, hey guys, sit around. He was saying, keep watch. And they fell asleep, and now they're surrounded by people who intend Jesus' harm. You can imagine Peter, James, and John kind of groggily waking up for the third time, being like, oh, sorry, Jesus. And all of a sudden, there are swords and clubs and torches coming out of the trees around them. And just this moment, this moment, right, of total, like, sobering fear when they realize something is not right. And they stand up, and even as they're standing up, they see Judas, one of them, walking up to Christ, and he embraces him and kisses him. And before they even have a moment to go, wait, what is going on? Jesus is being grabbed by these armed guards, and everything becomes chaos in that moment. And to give the disciples a little bit of credit, they have a moment where they try and stand their ground. A sword is drawn, a dude gets slashed, right? Jesus speaks this dramatic word of, am I leading a rebellion that you bring an army? I've been preaching in the town. Like, you know, like you can see the chaos and the intensity of this moment. But when it's all said and done, as the disciples are coming awake, as they're rousing themselves, there's noise, there's swords, there's blood. Jesus is being bound. And when push comes to shove, and they actually experience their savior, their friend, their rabbi, in his deepest moment of need, they all run. When it it comes down to it, when Christ needs them, they abandon him. And you need to know that Jesus knew this. He faced this. He saw the faithlessness in their hearts. I mean, they fell asleep when he asked them to pray. For, he had just said, right, like the last time they were on the Mount of Olives, he was like, keep awake, keep watch, keep, keep pray that you won't fall into temptation. And then like a day later, he asked them to do that and they go to sleep. Jesus faced their faithlessness and surrendered his will to God. And he walked out to meet his betrayer quietly as a sheep before the slaughter. And they ran. And they ran. Verse 50 says, they all left him and fled. And Mark adds this little detail where there's this young guy 
wearing like a toga thing. And he's like, maybe I can follow him. And they try and grab him. And he's so terrified that he like rips off the cloak and runs away naked. Which is maybe a humorous scene. But the point is striking. These guys are so gripped by abject terror and fear and self-preservation in this moment. They're not even stand like not not even that they won't stand with Christ. They will they will strip out of their clothes to run away naked into the darkness to get away from Jesus. These guys are so given to themselves and to their fear in this moment that they turn and run and they don't care what they leave behind. They just got to get out of there. They just got to not get arrested. They know what happens to people Romans arrest. They just got to get out. And they turn and they run. And our story ends with Jesus bound in the hands of captors and totally abandoned. Totally abandoned. Now I think it's awesome that Mark leaves this story a little vague, a little more vague than the other uh, gospel writers. And I think the reason is because by naming less characters and details, he gives us as the listener the opportunity to see ourselves in this story rather than stand in judgment over the participants in this story. Because if we're honest and we actually reflect on the immensity of Christ's love as he walks toward this sacrifice, his understanding of the weakness and faithlessness of his friends and followers is simply an example of us. Every time we come up and we take bread and we dip it in the cup, we are numbering ourselves amongst those who dipped and ate with Christ, of whom he said, you will all fall away. We are numbering ourselves amongst Jesus' friends and family. Yeah, the people that abandoned him when he needed them. You see, we are all Judas. We would sell Christ out for the right price. We are all Peter. We would gladly promise grandiose things, grandiose expressions of devotion in moments of spiritual high. And the minute things get real, we will turn and run. And we are all some unnamed naked teenager running away in the darkness because when it comes down to it, we want to follow Christ. But if you put the right circumstances in front of us, we would turn tail and run. Every one of us. We're weak. We're faithless. We abandon. The end. See you guys later. I'm just kidding. I need us to sit with that because that gives the gospel context. Turn with me to Romans chapter 5. And this will be where we end out our time today. Beloved, I use that term intentionally and I say this a lot. You are beloved. Jesus loves you. 
Like the story we're talking about right now, is Jesus loving you so much that he takes your faithlessness? Because he would rather have that than not have you. I want you to think about that. Christ did not want to suffer the cross, but he would rather do that than not have you. Meditate on that. In Romans chapter 5, we read this, starting in verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, still sinners, dead in our sin, sleeping when we're asked to watch, abandoning when there's need, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if we were, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You are the beloved of Christ. And you're a dirtbag. We are every one of us. Every one of us. Faithless. We would choose ourselves, we would choose fear, we would choose self-preservation if we are honest with the depths of our heart. And yet Christ says, I love you more than that. I love you more than that. I love you when you are not faithful to your commitments. When you walk away from things that are hard. I love you when you betray and you hurt. I love you when you focus your life around yourself. Christ loves you. He loves you deeply. He loves you immensely. He loves you passionately. He would die for you. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to pray for us, and I'm just going to open up space for communion. I'm going to invite you to come take the elements, take, take the bread and the juice, and reflect on Christ's body broken for you and his blood poured out for you. And we're going to take a few minutes and just experience that. And I would encourage you, encourage you to be confessional with your Jesus. To, to let him in to the reality of the depths of your heart. Maybe take a few moments, reflect on the depths of his love for you. And I don't know, maybe we can just adore him for a moment. Maybe we can sit back and think about how insane it is that Christ loves us that much. That we can reflect on the fact that if anyone else treated, if, if we knew a guy who treated his girlfriend the way we treat Christ, we'd tell him to, we'd tell him to leave. And Christ loves you that much.
We'll take a few minutes and take the elements and adore him for his goodness. And then I'll close us in prayer. Jesus, you're so good to us. You're just so good to us. God, we love you. We trust you. Meet us in this moment. Remind us of your, the depths of your love for us. God, for a few minutes, let us forget about the worries of this world and let us just be just us and you for a minute. Because you're so good. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Red Tree Church. Visit redtreechurch.com for more information. 